1: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A Living History production.
1: I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain.
2: And together, we're Pete and Gary's Bain. Military History
1: Podcast. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain and I'm joined by Peter Hart for a change.
2: It is a nice change to have me.
1: It is nice. Now, today, Pete, we're continuing our story of the 16th DLI.
2: Why do we keep doing this 16th DLI? What's special about them?
1: Uh, foot sloggers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and
2: when we <laughs> and left actually, them. Actually, they were special. <laughs>
1: and when we left them, Pete there was a question at the end of the, of the podcast about where would they be going? Have you been preparing again? <laughs> and now the title's going to give it away. So, spoiler, Middle East Sojourn.
2: Sojourn. <laughs> <laughs> we should have known. Uh, stay.
1: <laughs> now, the 16th I had no idea where they were going when on the 21st of February, they embarked aboard the Polish uh, tramp steamer the Sobieski, uh, which was in Naples docks.
2: Now, there's there's something I, I remember. I looked this up because there was a reference to some of them mentioned. The skipper of the Sobieski was a, a chap called Captain Walter Schmidt. Uh,
1: uh, doesn't sound very Polish.
2: No, it doesn't. And uh, so, why might uh, why might that have been? Why, why might that be unusual?
1: Well, uh, Captain Walter Schmidt had been a German U-boat commander in the Great War. <gasps> a baddie. Now, in total, he'd sunk two merchant ships, a trawler, damaged one destroyer, and sunk a further two torpedo boats, for which services he'd been awarded the Iron Cross second class.
2: I think he might have deserved Iron Cross first class for that. Sounds pretty good effort. Anyway, um, what, so I can picture the Sobieski. I can picture them basking on the deck, the swimming pool, the, the awnings covering everything. Was that, was that what it's like? Uh,
1: no. The Sobieski was by no means a luxury passenger ship. Uh, if anything, uh, but anything was luxury compared to living in a hole carved from rock on a bleak freezing mountainside. I could see that.
2: I could see that.
1: And um, it was certainly better than participating in the grim battle to capture, capture Monte Cassino.
2: They really dodged a bullet literally and figuratively in that. They'd had terrible fighting themselves at Monte Camino and lots of other places. But Monte Cassino is just a nightmare. We must visit that, Gary. We must visit that.
1: Now, this is Company Sergeant Major Leslie Thornton of the Support Company
2: it started to get warmer and warmer and warmer (laughs) soldiers never moaned (laughs) of course all the spirits rose and the chaps were thinking Ah, great this on the 27th of February we arrived at portside, and the contrast to the weather sun warm even at that time warm lovely weather and spirits were very high I thought he was going to start moaning when he was going warm warm bloody hell it's too warm here (laughs) we're always going uphill and then followed by, why is it always downhill?
1: <laughs> oh, I think you're casting aspersions. Yes. Yeah. Now, impromptu concert parties further improved the mood, while the officers held conferences to discuss the lessons that could be learnt from the recent fighting. Yeah. And also how they could be incorporated into future training programmes.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, as, as mentioned, they disembark at Portside and they're whisked Said. away. Portside, Said No, side. And they're whisked away by train to El Casasim camp. Uh, These places, you know my Sudan book, they're all mentioned in there. El Casasim, there was a couple of big fights there.
1: Are you doing a Sudan book?
2: I am. Guess what uh, one of the seasons next year might be about? Uh, The Sudan? Yeah! (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, so where are they accommodated in El Casasim camp?
1: Well, they're... (laughs) Typically, they're accommodated in tents with bamboo bed frames issued to the men. Soon... They had established sergeants and officers' messes,
2: and Company Sergeant Major Leslie Thornton says this: It was a tented camp. The sergeants' mess was was, was together in, in, in a tent with a table and tablecloths. We had knives and forks. We had grapefruit for breakfast every morning, and we had food laid out for for us. We got to know each other, the sergeants of the other companies, because you never saw them. This is the first time we'd been together for months and months. It was a good thing, and of course it had a lot of casualties, no chance to get to know the new fellas, so this is a, a bit of a bonding and settling down thing, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and one of the most important priorities was <laughs> to get the men away off on local leave in Cairo.
2: Well, I bet that was a bit of an eye-opener, eh?
1: <laughs> well, in many ways it was. Uh, the usual agenda of the soldier Can was I guess what one of these <laughs> evidence. Um, Can I
2: guess what these things might have been, judging you from yourselves? Uh, excessive uh, alcohol drinking? Tick. Uh, unashamed hunt for sexual gratification?
1: Sick, sick, stick, tick. <laughs> I got a bit excited there about a hunt for sexual gratification.
2: Yeah, what do you think most of us settle for? Get, remembering your own experiences uh, in Germany. The excessive
1: drinking, I think.
2: No sexual gratification?
1: No. no. Well, no it was mar- too hard to find. <laughs>
2: yeah, and you were married when you were in Germany, so you had no chance of any of that.
1: And once more, this is Company Sant Major Leslie Thornton.
2: There was a big hotel called the Hotel des Roses. Who know what that means? It's French.
1: Des.
2: (laughs) And it was a, a warrant officers and sergeants hotel. We made our way to this big hotel, and in it was a heap of Americans. Well, they were pleased to see us. We got on well with them. The beer was on. But when it was gone, it's gone. You couldn't drink it all night. The Americans went to the bar and filled up these tables with beers. We had a terrific night. Dancing with dancing. No women there, hey. Eh? <laughs> but we were dancing with this couple of yanks about six foot four inch who had older hold of me. And we, we were dancing round with all my legs off the floor. We went off to our bullet, billet. Not quite sober, believe me. Does he mean pissed as a fart?
1: Do I you- think he does mean that. And I'm just thinking about the, uh, the noun for a, a group of Americans, a heap of Americans. <laughs> That's quite an interesting description
2: That's nice isn't it
1: Now as they uh, careened around the streets of Cairo many of the men ran into trouble with the military police
2: You used to run into trouble with the
1: military police Yeah because (laughs) they did not seem inclined to let things go or understand what horrors the Durham's had been through in the last few months and once more Company Sergeant Major Leslie Thornton carries on the story
2: Four days leaving Cairo First day, two hours after we got there two Sergeant Majors were under arrest i wasn't one of them they went into a red light district out of bounds didn't know the area hadn't been to cairo before they went in uh, uh, into an out of bounds area and the military police picked them up and took them in well after some phone calls the adjutant had released them
1: (laughs) Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a bit harsh. If they've just landed there, how are they supposed to know, really?
2: A big signpost saying, red light area, out of bounds.
1: Yeah, well, some of the troubles were not really of their own making. Luckily, Johnny Preston... Who's he? He's the colonel, was an officer who believed in standing up for his men. And this is Private James Corr of B Company. Everybody got pinched for not having gaiters on. That was the dress out there, but we didn't have them. Johnny Preston got the whole battalion on parade, and he says... Now, everybody that has been charged with being improperly dressed, I've decided to hang 15 of you and jail the rest of you for life. He says, they're stupid bloody men. They've got some on a charge for fighting. I've trained them for fighting. Cases is dismissed. Cracking, I bet the lad's like that. Uh,
2: but it, it, it's a, se- a sensible approach.
1: Now, Bill Ver or William, uh, well remembered his trip to Cairo. Uh, he had some chums hired. He and some chums hired a local guide, but they were soon aware that tourists were easy game to the local Arab entrepreneurs. Now,
2: Summer, I want to just make it quite clear that this is not some Arab trait, as they always try and portray it. Uh, if you've ever tried it with a London taxi driver, <laughs> you find exactly the same thing. So, you, Gary, know what I'm going to say. This is what Bill Ver sorry William Ver says. They picked us up in, in this biggish car. First of all, he took us to some bazaar probably his brother in law's bazaar. Had us looking round there, then to the Museum of Hygiene. Uh, that that was showing you various models of people with syphilis. That was something we didn't want to see. <laughs> but no. Eventually we got to the pyramids. You could have got the tram there, actually. <laughs> We got on these horses. We had, a, we had a horse each, a lad with each one, and they led you round the pyramids. We had our photograph taken. He gave us his card and said, your photo will be ready tomorrow. You pick it up at Kazir El Nia Street, a shop there. Next day, we go to this shop. We came to a garrier, a horse and car. I asked him, could he tell us where this place was? Yes, jump in. He took us all round Cairo, <laughs> it up back at the same place. It's just down there. <laughs>
1: So the chap who was telling them where to get their um, photographs for... Posh English. posh English, you (laughs) see.
2: A lot of Arabs speak posh English.
1: All right. Now, Arthur Vizard, that's Major Arthur Vizard, also remembered the local Arab salesman upsetting the Padre. Oh,
2: Padres are quite easy to upset.
1: I wanted to be a Padre.
2: Yeah. I'm
1: easily upset.
2: What did the Sergeant Major say to you?
1: He told me, fuck off, back to bed. (laughs) Now... uh, this is Major Arthur Vizard of the Headquarters Company. In Egypt, there was a lot of pornographic literature circulating. Johnny Arab would come round and shout, Horny books! And the troops would buy these books. The parson used to get very upset about it, and I used to confiscate them when I came across them. Oh, I bet he did. But you couldn't do anything about it. There you were in the spring of 44, and the troops had been away since the December of 42. Better that, probably, than the brothels.
2: Uh, they, they weren't used to being married, a lot of them, then, were there Because two-year gaps, almost nothing to you, Gary. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's quite regular. <laughs> Most of the battalion... How, how, how are the biscuits working? Uh, brilliantly. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> I'm putting on weight. Most of the battalion... Oh, well, this
2: is what I meant and meant and you know it.
1: I'm trying to be a professional here. Oh, sorry. Most of the battalion managed to get through the Cairo experience unscathed, although VD rates may have risen in the aftermath, as they often did.
2: Yeah, of course they did, When uh,
1: when there was leave. Now, more welcome was the arrival of a new draft of officers, including Lieutenant Richard Hewlett.
2: Now, he was a great guy, uh, and he's in one of the big stories in one of the later episodes. A terrible, terrible story. Uh, He survives, but wow, what a story it is. He was born the son of a writer and concert party performer from Kensington, that's where the War Museum is, in 1919. After school, he'd worked in the motor trade before joining an accounts department for a firm in Stroud. Is it Stroud? Australia, yeah. Uh, After being called up with the Royal Army Service Corps, he'd risen to the rank of Staff Sergeant, Mm. serving in Egypt since 1940. He then made what I might consider a severe mistake, but one that does him credit. What did he do?
1: Well, he applied to join the infantry as he decided his life was too cushy and uh, was commissioned into the Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire Light Infantry.
2: Yeah, and the Light Infantry are pretty well treated all as one during the war, and uh, he's posted to join B Company, 16th DLI. Now, here he he encounters a bit of a character. Who's that?
1: Well, it's the acting company commander, Captain Jimmy Coots. And this is uh, what Lieutenant Richard Hewlett of 12 Platoon B Company says.
2: Jimmy Coots often seemed to be very angry. He was angry with life. A good officer, very good for an infantryman, aggressive, hating the Germans, and hating anyone who was around to be hated, one felt. <laughs> very good company. He had painted on his bivouac in black paint base wallers. Hack 'em in the fork. <laughs> Hack 'em in the fork. <laughs> What does he mean? Does he mean kick him in the bollocks? He does, doesn't As he? If he does, yeah. In big letters all across the thing. That summed up is that out- outlook to base wallets. We'll come back to that because there's some more quotes about that later on. Uh, did this day El Casasim long? Oh, Dugger, I wanted you to say.
1: It. <laughs> I thought. I wondered what was happening there. I'm quite surprised you didn't make me well, say how, that.
2: How do you pronounce it?
1: El Casasim.
2: Quack, 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 quack. Qua. El Casasim. <laughs> I'd have gone for the K start
1: there. Now, on the 13th, 14th of March, the 16th, D.L.I. moved to Kefayona, which was near Tel Aviv in Palestine. Mm.
2: Well, this is this is um, this is into a this is a, into a, a slightly somber phase of this podcast. Uh, we've all had fun so far, but this isn't mm. going to be nice. Anyway- well, the
1: listeners haven't.
2: And of course, they haven't had a good time, but well, we have, Gary. <laughs> Look at that happy little smile on your face. Anyway, uh, this is what Captain Alan Hay of A Company said uh, when, when they when they got to uh, to the new camp at uh, Café Yona.
1: It was a new tented camp. Everything was spick and span. Eight man tents. The camp was surrounded by an expanse of barbed wire. And immediately behind the barbed wire were these very lush orange trees. (laughs) But there were notices all around the barbed wire. Do not trespass beyond this point. There was a supreme optimist at the entrance to the camp who had a pile of two or three tons of Jaffa oranges trying to sell them to the troops. I must say, I don't think he sold any. The troops just went under the wire and everybody had a tent full of oranges.
2: And, you know, I've, uh, that's another... It, it, to me, remember the South O'Tazars? Same story, same places. Uh, and First World War, same things. It, it, the British soul never seems to change. And the optimism of... I wonder if it's the grandfather of the earlier ones. Oh, I'll put a big pile of oranges next to the entrance. Anyway, um, so they they, 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 they they hadn't settled in long, had they?
1: No, uh, at 12 o'clock on the 24th of March. That's very March. precise, Gary, 12 o'clock. Right, I think it was 12.05 actually. Oh. Uh, the whole battalion was put on one hour's notice that it was to move to Tel Aviv to aid the civil power, in this case the Palestinian police. Palestine police,
2: Palestine, yeah. Palestine police, sorry. They're, they're, um, mm, that's an interesting yeah, thing.
1: Yeah, this is, this, is, this is odd. I, I mean, clearly I knew about what happened after the war and the role that the, uh, the British forces played, but I didn't realise it happened during the war.
2: Well, it had been going on for ages. Uh, the all through the 30s there'd been uh, the Arab revolt uh, where, where the British had been in to, 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 to uh, c- counter uh, insurgency amongst the Arabs uh, and uh, in, in support of the Jewish community but the, the, it had flipped hadn't it
1: yeah there'd long been tension as you allude to between the Jewish and Arab communities but the night before there'd been a series of attacks attributed to Jewish settlers on British soldiers in uh, Haifa Jerusalem and Tel Aviv
2: Now, Uh, so the the times there are changing in in Palestine. Uh, The the, the British Army feels a response is needed and the uh, the 16th DLI, the company has split up a dispatch to to various uh, commandeered school billets in in the major conurbations. Uh, Now, one of of those who goes is the recently promoted Captain Hay, uh, Alan Hay, we should have mentioned that. Uh, He was going to replace Major Pat Casey, commanding a company and he would become a major very soon. He recalled the situation as it seems to him at the time. Now, we want to make it clear some of these quotes have got inappropriate language, but we're not going to change language used at the time, but we are going to warn you that some of it is occasionally inappropriate.
1: And this is Captain Alan Hay. The Stern gang started to put posters on the trees, an arm with a clenched fist clutching a rifle, with words to the effect of, We will conquer Palestine. They were being plastered up during the night. Round about Tel Aviv, the kibbutz were grossly overmanned. This was the hidden army. These were fit men. They weren't growing things. You could see them. They were pretending to work. They were obviously building up something. We had to report this. Then there were attacks on the Palestine police. My company was moved into Tel Aviv proper and we were billeted on a school. Our job was to send patrols round with the police.
2: Now, tension builds up and builds up, and it was decided to enforce a general nighttime curfew between uh, 1700 and 0, 0500. So that's, that's a, a long nighttime. Pur- How many hours is that, Gary? Uh,
1: 12.
2: I'm really impressed.
1: And it was a very difficult undertaking, as Captain Alan Hay says. You have to imagine. Tel Aviv had this beautiful beach. It was very busy and normal people not at war. No signs of any war. To shut this down at five o'clock when everyone had to get off the streets. They'd had plenty of warning. So we used to go round with these patrols. In one particular area, there was a leader. He wore a distinctive shirt. He was unmistakable. They were on their balconies. He would get in the middle of the street waiting for the truck coming. He was a right rabble rouser. Now, we weren't allowed to go into any houses, so we devised a little scheme. We would send the truck round going slowly, attracting people's attention. It would get past this chap, and we came quietly behind with the jeep. But we didn't nab him. He got inside his house. We still went in and gave him a good what you call duffing up. Of course, there were complaints about it. That was an isolated incident.
2: Now we want to make it clear that, that the Jewish perception of such an incident would be, uh, and such behaviour would be very different. Uh, and we're, we're not commenting on wh- whether they should have followed him. And or, uh, probably they shouldn't. they had been told not to, so they shouldn't. Um, but it this, was a
1: hotbed of emotion. Yeah,
2: and and uh, well, and and is to this day. Um,
1: and at this point, we'll take a short break. The daytime patrol sometimes ran into trouble with the various sides accusing the other of terrorism and brutality... And this is an an old favourite of ours, Private Tom Lister of the Motor Transport Section Headquarters Company.
2: We did patrols with pickaxe handles supporting the Palestine police. Usually, an NCO and six men in the back of an open 1,500-weight truck just went round and patrolled the streets, looking down these side roads to see if there were any disturbances. There had been a meeting of Orthodox Jews, the ones with the beards and hats, young and old, in this cinema on the corner not far from the school billets these sods waited until at least half of them got out and were congregating in this small courtyard and then drove past and threw a grenade or two in amongst them. Then they tried to blame us but we had pickaxe handles. You can't blow anybody up with them. Now, I don't know who did that, whether it was Arabs or or a false flag thing or I don't know who did it and I don't think they knew and, you know, but uh, there's more drama coming up for Alan Hay because at 11 o'clock on 27th of March, they got a warning from the uh, District Commissioner's Office the the, the 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 and the Income Tax Office that the buildings should be evacuated. Why? Why should they be evacuated?
1: Well, they were told that bombs had been planted and that they were due to go off very soon.
2: So what does Alan, Captain Alan Hay, A Company, say?
1: They'd cleared the building. The employees were standing outside, being kept back by the police. I take the squad of men and the superintendent said, there's been a report of a bomb being planted in here. I said, why this building? He said, well, this is the government tax building. Let's go in. I had no option but to go in with him. Everything was just as the people had left it. There were cigarettes burning and you could see that people had come out in a hurry. He went round kicking waste paper baskets, looking. There were a lot of rooms and we went round. After a while, he said, I don't think there's anything here. Well, it wasn't what I'd call a thorough search. And I said... Do you want an organised search by one or two picked men of ours? No, no, it's just one of these scares. They're starting to do this to disrupt life. He didn't think there was a bomb.
2: There might have been, and that's a very laissez-faire attitude, isn't it? Now, the tension and growing pressure meant that, sadly, and this is unfortunate, attitudes towards the Jewish population began to worsen amongst some of the soldiers of the Durhams. Uh, There's no two ways about this. And this is what Private Tom Lister says. If you went round on your own, you were a mug, because these Jewish youths used to be waiting. If they got half the chance, they used to beat you up. At first, until I knew better, I was more sympathetic towards the Jews. But after I saw their behaviour uh, the, the behaviour of the various parties, I changed my mind and decided that the Arabs were getting a rough deal. And I want to point out again, this is flip-flopping throughout the last 20, well, from 19 the 1930s through to the post-war period. Uh, the British attitude flip-flops between supporting one side and the other, doesn't it?
1: Now, when the civil unrest finally died down on the 4th of April, the battalion moved back to the Kefe Yona camp, then on to Air Rama camp, set in an olive grove close to the Galile- Galilean hills, which provided good training opportunities.
2: Yeah, um, this is, I mean, training's crucial, isn't it? And uh, there's battle training courses uh, uh, for, for, sec- for section and platoon commanders. Uh, what well, They're brushing up the tactics, aren't they? Uh, their leadership skills. Um, Uh, But it does something else, doesn't it?
1: Well, it also allows the newly arrived officers to bed down into the unit. Uh, One such was Douglas Tiffin. Great name. The son of a dentist in Sunderland. Don't they have dentists in Sunderland? They do, they They don't. Who worked as a clerk in a marine insurance office. Excuse me. After volunteering as a gunner, he rose to the rank of sergeant, serving with various artillery units in the UK, Iraq and North Africa, before being commissioned and joining the 16th DLI in Palestine. And this is 2nd Lieutenant Douglas Tiffin of A Company.
2: They might assume that you hadn't any army experience. I had no difficulty there. If I'd been a new officer coming in straight from Blighty, I would have perhaps been a bit apprehensive. But I'd been a sergeant. I was used to dealing with men. I wasn't going to have any nonsense. (laughs) And uh, there you go, experience. It's a wonderful thing. So the
1: training went on. Multiple courses, weapons firing on the acre ranges the temporary attachment of officers to the 70th Field Regiment, Royal Artillery, anything and everything to get them tuned up and once again ready for war.
2: Yeah, so on 11th of May, they, they go to a special training uh, area, uh, J Mezar Camp in Syria. Uh, that's 15 miles due west of Damascus. Not 14 miles, Gary, 15 miles.
1: Oh, perhaps we should put a map up. Bugger that. Now, here they began a series of tactical exercises. So
2: what what form did they
1: take? Well, the battalion would move out of the camp and take up positions as if on active services, Patrols would fill their way forward and clear gaps through a minefield.
2: Yeah, and this expands in scope. This is a standard British pattern of, of exercise. So it goes almost from platoon, company, battalion and then brigade and even divisional exercises. The whole of the 46th Division are involved. Uh, there's something that's that, that we're thinking back to the 5T4 fires. You remember them?
1: Never heard of them.
2: Yeah, but do you remember they had trouble with infantry tank cooperation?
1: Absolutely. So special attention was supposed to be paid to tank cooperation, uh, something that early after-action reports had noted was lacking.
2: Yeah, we remember when they were crossing the, the, the Tiano, there'd been problem with tank cooperation, and they, they have a go at it. And this is what Captain Alan Hay, A Company, says about this.
1: We were to work with the tanks when we got back to Italy because there was going to be a major attack. The commander of the tank regiment would get with the CO. The CO would say, right, this is our task. We're going to attack this objective. What we propose to do is this. We don't know much about the enemy. How best can you support us? We chatted over it and did one or two little exercises together. They used to work out purely on the topography of the thing. It was no use putting tanks in minor lanes. They had to be in the open. Street fighting wasn't very good for tanks. In Syria, it was more arid than it was going to be in Italy. I don't know what we a great. Uh, I don't know that we learnt a great deal, but we worked together. We got to know the chaps, how they worked, how they liked to do things. That's mm. a good point. It is very different.
2: Yeah, and you, but you do – I mean, just those personal contacts. I mean, you know, instead of contacting an unknown officer, you can contact an officer you, you've met and yeah. you've worked with, even if it's only on a, a bit of a failed tactical exercise, because they weren't great, the uh – uh, now, uh, so, so what happens next? Well, they, they, they move back to Kefayona, but uh, so carry on training, more, more training. Then guess what they do after more training, more training, and then more training, and then more training. And then they begin the long journey back to El Kasasim camp, which they get back to on the 18th of June.
1: Oh, you have wanted to say it again.
2: Oh, for God's sake.
1: <laughs> now, there was a real dichotomy very good between frontline units who thought they were at the sharp end and the people who had jobs often important jobs that kept them behind the line and far away from the fighting
2: now this is a this is a constant thing you get people not understanding the pyramid of you know there's only so many at the front and everybody behind them is working to keep those people equipped with food ammunition logistics
1: everything. as our dear friend Rob Thompson used to say
2: yeah it's crucial uh, so uh, but 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 does everybody understand that?
1: No, and this is Company Sergeant Major Leslie Thornton once more of Support Company.
2: We weren't received very well by the people there. The lads called them base wallers. There were quite a few scuffles went on. The lads were let loose. There was a bar there and and there was beer there. So even in the sergeant's mess, there were quite a few arguments and scuffles with these chaps who thought that we shouldn't be there, i.e. the base wallers. Do you think the officers calmed the situation down, brought an air of calm and sophisticated just acceptance.
1: No, because they were pursuing their own somewhat rowdy pursuits. And this is Lieutenant Richard Hewlett of Twelfth Platoon.
2: We weren't very popular, Durham Light Infantry, at the Casim Officers Club. It was mainly caused through drinking a drink which we christened Culloden Field. This consisted of every drink of that row of bowls top rank, all in a pint glass. The base was a tomato juice (laughs) and everything else went into it. It was a lethal concoction. We had everybody, including the Padres, drinking it. This drink created games of rugger in the mess with cushions and things like that. Finally, we were banned for very unruly behaviour. They probably had good, cushy jobs and and were there for the duration of the war. They didn't really understand that for infantry officers, things were a bit different. Yeah, well, um, as ever, both sides, they're behaving badly, and they are behaving badly, but there's reasons why they behave badly. It's, uh, yeah...
1: Now, on the 24th of June, they had a piece of really bad news as they found their popular colonel had been promoted away to become a senior staff officer with the headquarters of 78th Division. And this is Captain Alan Hay of A Company. Colonel Johnny Preston said goodbye to us. He was a great colonel. We all got on well. He brought out soldieriness that we obviously didn't have. He was great. When he gave his orders, it wasn't in a profound military sense. He chatted to you. I know he was the same with other company commanders. When you had a particular job to do, he would say, don't be suicidal, do what you can, you've got a few more battles to fight, don't make this one your last one. He was encouraging in that way, he was very humane. He understood no good dashing in to lose more troops than you need be.
2: Now who replaced him? Well, uh, Major Dennis Wood, he was a second in command, he was promoted... To Lieutenant Colonel, and from now on is Colonel Dennis Worrell of the 16th DLI. Uh, where's he come from?
1: Well, he joined the 16th DLI in North Africa and won his MC for his courage in getting supplies through in the Corpo de Carver operation. Funny enough,
2: we missed out on them. That's in the advance to Naples. We had to cut something. It's not. Yeah.
1: Now, he rather divided opinion amongst his officers and men. Some admired him, recognised his personal courage and leadership qualities. Others were sceptical and felt he couldn't see the difference between courage and foolishness.
2: Yeah, there's no doubt that the, the, the common perception was that tactically he was not as adept as Johnny Preston, uh, but he was competent. And we'll come to some of the illustrations of what feelings run high sometimes in infantry, don't they? Because they're right at the sharp end and. They do get a bit angsty at times. Um, anyway, um, so new leader on 28th of June, 1944. The uh, the men of the 16th DLI, they set sail aboard the Sobieski again. And and where are they going? Where? Where?
1: Back to Italy.
2: Well, they knew that. And uh, what does Captain Alan Hay say?
1: We were expecting it. And it was quite a relief, really, to find that we were going back to Italy rather than go and face the second front with new dimensions. New commanders, new chiefs, new everything. In soldiering, you get a comfortable feeling about something. It's not always pleasant, but you know the people about you. You know your commanders. You get to know the German habits, what to expect. We knew Italy, and it wasn't bad fighting. If you're going to have to fight, you might as well go in knowing something about what to expect.
2: Yeah, but I'm going to have to say this. Little did they know exactly what lay ahead of them because what, what what happens next is a series of the worst battles in the DLI history. And if you want to know more, if you can't wait, listeners, then what should you? What should they do, Gary? What should they do while they wait for our next podcast?
1: Uh, they should buy and read Foot Sloggers by some chap called Peter Hart.
2: He's lovely, that bloke. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers, Gary.
1: Cheers, Pete. <coughs>
2: Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, blah. us, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, blah. Visit www.
1: www.buymeacoffee.com backslash P-G-M-H or visit blah, 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 blah and we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers.
2: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at BuyMeACoffee forward slash pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?